The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. And I thought today it might be nice to talk about tranquility. Uh, if you're new, we've been talking maybe since January about what is called in early Buddhism the three characteristics. So it's the Buddhist description of when we're not caught up in our projections and interpretations of what's going on, what do we actually experience? Well, what we actually experience, you know, we say, well, I experience my body, I experience seeing, I experience hearing, I experience mental activity. But what actually starts to stand out when there's more stability of present moment awareness is whatever it is we're aware of, it's in motion. There's nothing static or fixed. So this is that underlying characteristic of change, or anicca, the insubstantial, uncertain, changing, unfixed nature of thought, of sight, of sound, of everything. Everything is just a natural process that's unfolding. And the reason we make a big point of that is Language, like when I label things, even labeling ourselves as me or Mark, that way that we label things, we put a designating word, Minneapolis or whatever it is, it lends this sort of permanence to something that isn't fixed or permanent at all. But it begins to have, because of our superficiality and our fixation on language more than our experiencing, things tend to seem much more permanent than they are. They're not permanent. They're a natural process that's unfolding. And uh, the other underlying characteristic, the impersonal nature, and maybe a little bit more provocative, the unsatisfactory nature of our conditions, of our experience. There is something that we could call gratification, which can be really nice. When we get what we really want, there is that experience of gratification. Like, well, that felt good. I've been wanting this a long time. I've been sitting cross-legged now for, God, 45 minutes. It will be so nice when I stretch my leg out. But interestingly, the experience of gratification often has much more to do with the wanting it to happen going away. We really want to eat lunch, which is stressful. So when I get lunch, that wanting goes away. That's part of the experience of gratification. So there is that thing of gratification, but it it isn't substantial. It doesn't really take care of us forever. We've been gratified any number of times, thousands and thousands of times in our lives. But there's no end to desiring, it seems, right? We, it, it doesn't lead like, oh, I'm totally satisfied now. Anybody there? No. <laughs> so that's what that underlying characteristic of dissatisfaction or dukkha means. It just means that tr- even if we've been really fortunate and we've had every single privilege there is to have, we don't end up fully, completely satisfied. 
let alone if we have difficult circumstances in our lives or being mistreated, right? We just don't find that in existence. We don't bump into people who are permanently satisfied. We could offer like a a challenge, a billion dollars, (laughs) to anybody who's perfectly satisfied forever, no matter what, because it won't happen. It's just not in the nature of existence. And so that's that quality of dukkha. Things are changing. All of that that's changing isn't really personal in the way that we conventionally pretend that it is. So even when I do something silly or humiliating or I do something brilliant, whatever that is, conventionally we say, I did that. Right? And that's okay that we have these conventions. But actually, subjectively, honestly, you know, it happened. It was experienced. It was known. But there isn't, you know, when I say I did that, there isn't a some me back there that did it. It was just the play of causes and conditions. So I'm not saying that we should change our convention and when you scream, we all can feel okay saying, hey, you screamed, you know, or you did this, or you did that. But that we learn directly from observation that, oh yeah, when I do things, or when I refrain from doing things, that's just that natural and impersonal unfolding of causes and conditions, which includes my personality. So it doesn't mean we don't have a personality, it just means our personality is nature, like the weather is nature. And the reason I thought it would be good to talk about tranquility is that it's not so easy to open up to these three underlying characteristics of our experience as human beings, that things are changing, that they're unsatisfying, and that they're impersonal. And what actually supports the deepening of insight generally is this experience of calm and tranquility. And it it really speaks to one of the basic principles of learning and the deepening of insight. And that's the value of contrast. Like we see, we recognize experience to a large degree because of contrast. You know, have you... As you get my age, my mid-60s, you know, we start having a lot of these floaters. I don't know if people know about this, the young people, but little something in your visual field that has to do with aging eyes. And you start seeing, but normally, you know, when you have a visual space like I have with a lot of different shapes and forms and colors, but when I'm out and I'm walking and it's all that snow we've had this winter, you know, just white, white, white everywhere, well, then you notice it. Or if you're lying in bed and looking at a white ceiling, well, then you start to notice all the debris, <laughs> or whatever that is. Some of you, with maybe a medical background, know what those floaters are, but just different things that begin to erode or happen in our eyes as we get older more and more. But it's the contrast that allows you to see that. And it can be surprising, like if you haven't noticed it and all of a sudden you have the ideal conditions, like you're 
sitting just looking at a snowy field with gray clouds, and then you'll notice, oh yeah, there's a, it's not perfect clarity. There are all these sort of stuff floating around in the visual field, obscuring sight. And it's the same thing generally, more generally, and more powerfully with tranquility. When our mind heart has uncovered this, you know, or developed, let's say, this capacity we all have to be deeply calm, settled, tranquil, so that there's a, let's call it an emotional feeling of, I don't need things to be different than they are right now. I'm really content. I don't need to move my body. I don't need to move my mind. Like, you know, when we're bored, we're sort of looking visually or we're we're trying to find something interesting, right? Because nothing's happening. But when we're really deeply tranquil, there's this this, uh, affective emotional feeling of I'm totally okay with the way it is. And it's not a dull state. So, because often when we think of calm and tranquility, we equate it to that time before we fall asleep. Right? And that is a kind of calm. But in, in a sort of spiritual Buddhist psychology, the proximate cause for calm is joy and rapture. It's like that joyful interest, that very enlivened state, really feeling safe, being radically alert, present with the conditions, so that I'm really, like, all the doors and windows are open, I'm really here. And in being really here, I realize to some degree, it's really okay to be here. How do I know? Because I'm wide open, I'm totally sensitive, I'm totally alert, and I'm realizing directly that it's okay. It's not eating me up. And and a sense of calm begins to arise in that mind, in that heart. And if it's nourished appropriately through wise attention, then that that quality of tranquility will deepen and deepen and deepen. And then when it's really stable, that sense of calm and tranquility, then anything that, any kind of disturbance, any kind of agitation, any kind of restlessness, neurotic activity, it just stands out because of the contrast. And we learn so much about the nature of our own mind, which we will never notice You know, when we're kind of neurotic and restless, we don't notice neurotic and restless activity in the mind because there's no contrast. How would we see it? But when we're deeply settled and then something, whatever it might be, a memory or some external condition triggers some neurotic mental activity, it's just seen in living color. Oh, look at what's happening. And then there's that possibility of observing whatever got stirred up in this non-judging, calm, curious way. And we really, it reveals the truth of these three underlying characteristics. Like, there is something here, because I'm really calm and clear, 
there is a sense of stillness and you could even say solidity you know there's we just feel when the when the tranquility is really strong we feel very grounded very but that doesn't mean things aren't moving right things are still moving and that's itself is an insight like there is a stability of presence that has the insight that everything is alive with movement. When we're identified with the movement of our mind and identified with the movements around us, we don't notice how fluid and uncertain and um, unfixed everything is. But when we've cultivated that stability of presence, that tranquil, calm, in a sense, unmoving presence, then, and in a way, only then do we understand anicca and dukkha and anatta. These are the, those three characteristics that I was talking about. Anicca is change or impermanence. Dukkha is this unsatisfaction or unsatisfying nature of it, all experience, even pleasant experience, isn't satisfying. And you might notice it if you've been more and more reflective in your life, you might have a, something you really enjoy doing and realizing it's not really satisfying in some deeper sense. I'm conditioned to like it. I'll probably keep, if I can, gravitating toward this experience but I'm no longer pretending, imagining that it's satisfying in the way that I had the habit of thinking it was satisfying. I was watching some of the NCAA tournament. Um, I like watching the underdogs, and there's been some great games. I haven't seen that many, but maybe four games. Um, always looking for the widespread between the high seeds and the low seeds, to, just to see, could, can they pull it out? And uh, and I notice because I normally I, I don't really watch much sports at all. This is like one of the few things I'll watch, and uh, so it's kind of a, a strange environment. There's just so much, you know, it's so intoxicating. There's just so much emotional energy in these things, um, and uh, and to to realize like. Oh, this is really stressful. <laughs> it's like, why do people do this? <laughs> like, and why am I doing this? You know, and to, it's just, it was interesting. I couldn't maintain this, but in moments, that curiosity was there. Like, can there be a, an awareness that it's like this, that all this is moving in me and around me, but like that, stillness with all the activity. It's just really interesting to see, like, can that happen? And just noticing the different ways the mind would want to grasp on to ideas, good versus bad, you know, the David and Goliath sort of, that's so, you know, there are a lot of these sort of memes that are deeply ingrained in our minds, and that's one of them, you know, because in so many little and big ways, whether we deserve it or not, we think of ourselves as a David, you know, nobly taking on the Goliaths in, in our world. And uh, 
you know, that's just an expression of delusion mostly. <laughs> I mean, to a large degree, if, if you're living in Minneapolis and have time to take up a Buddhist meditation practice, you know, we're doing reasonably well, most of us, you know, just to have that privilege alone. But in any case, there's something like, uh, we like the brand of being the David, who, you know, and we get identified, so it gets sticky in our mind. And then we start needing the underdog to win. And, and we, we've set up this thing that I'll be disappointed. It will be so heartbreaking if they get close. It's one thing if it's a blowout, you know, but if it's, and then they just don't make that last shot. And so it's just really interesting to see how sticky this all is. And the whole idea from the Buddhist teachings is we stabilize our lives first and foremost by paying attention to our ethical conduct. Because as long as we're cheating and stealing and taking what isn't ours and not caring about how others are being harmed and taken advantage of, we think we can get away. Well, that's not really my business. You know, that's those people being bad over there. I don't do that. But to whatever degree we've closed our heart off in any way, it's stressful. It's only by that exposure like, oh yeah, we belong to each other. It matters how we're treating each other. Not saying anything is being complicit. We don't get away with not caring. You can try, but if you develop a spiritual life and you become more sensitive because you're living a spiritual life, you will notice that it hurts in any way you don't care or you don't think it's your responsibility to care and respond. It hurts. So the first thing we do is we start realizing it all matters, like just on this more relational level, how we're living together matters. And each of us in each of our locations, culturally, you know, gender, racial, however we're located, we have to show up being connected and understanding to some degree that it matters how we show up in our worlds. And we don't do that because we're being a good person. We do that because it hurts to not do that. And then, you know, people have tried to talk about this just like, you know, just in terms of racial terms, you know, like, oh, why are people talking about race so much, racism so much? And I, you know, as a white person, I feel that in my own heart, that pushback, like, oh boy, more, more of this, because I've been conditioned to not want to talk about it. <laughs> but the more I pay attention, the more I realize that although that's my conditioning, it's an uneasy place to be. It's actually ventilating our racial situation, our class situation, how we relate to different body sizes, how we relate around gender and sexual orientation. Now, clearly this stuff can get neurotic, you know, where people, you know, get identified with being the sort of cultural warrior in, you know, in an arrogant way. So I know it can get off, but that doesn't mean it isn't part of our work. Like if we really want to be at ease, we have to care. 
And only then do we start to feel safer, not because we're perfect at having done everything we need to do, but because we've started to open the doors and windows. We started to pay attention. We realize that it matters. And then we start to feel that's actually the beginning of real calm. Otherwise, it's a fragile calm. It's like we feel calm as long as nobody brings up these ten subjects. <laughs> you know, Or as long as I don't have these kind of interactions with these kind of people, then I'm okay. But that's stressful, even though we may often not realize that that's stressful. It's a burden on our heart. And forget about how healing it might be for the wider community. It will be healing for us to begin to pay attention to that stuff. It's the way forward, spiritually. Spirituality is not an escape from the messy work of being a human being where you know, for endless generations, right, our conditioning that we pass down generation by generation, it's all about power, right? It's all about power and hierarchy. I mean, this is just like how beings organize themselves, holding on to the power we have, trying to get the power we don't have, suspicious of people who might want the power that we have. In the Buddhist cosmology, they they depict a kind of a species of beings. They're called the warring god. They're a little bit like the the Roman and Greek gods, if you ever study those. But it's like they got pretty nice conditions, but they're totally obsessed with who has better conditions. So they don't enjoy their nice conditions because they're totally fixated on like, you just got a new car, or, you know, you just got that job, or... So it's only by sensing our interrelatedness and owning that, like really, oh... I mean, it goes beyond just the other humans on the planet, right? Because we're here with a lot of other sensitive beings. I was just reading something... I guess it was about windows, but they were saying that uh, 30% of the birds have died since, I don't know, 1970 or something like that, just partly because of the, you know, all the windows and stuff. Oh, it was about New York City and and uh, skyscrapers, and it was just some article in the New York Times. I don't remember exactly what it was about, except that, that statistic. And uh, And that's just one example. You know, and then the insects, there was another huge report a couple years ago. So this is just because we've trained our mind not to care, not to be sensitive. Like, we kind of know. I remember as a kid in the early 60s, we used to drive to where my dad was born in Montana. And uh, so we drive across North Dakota. And by the time we got there, you know, back in those, those days, You'd have a screen in front of your front of your car to collect all the insects. Now, when is the last time you drove in the country and saw your grill covered with insects? But it used to be, and that wasn't that long ago. That was whatever that was, fifty years ago, sixty years ago, and it's really changed. 
So we actually, in experience, we know the difference, but you see, we're just not even connected about something like that. Huge changes. So what allows us to, because otherwise what's going to happen as we get sensitive, we're just going to freak out, whether it's around race or around privilege or around whatever it is, the ecological crisis. But if we develop sensitivity and we allow our heart not to be perfect, but to do its best to respond, to be moved, and to take the next step. Because what happens is we want to be perfect. And this is where, like, uh, you know, people who have really undertaken uh, activism around gender, around race, it can get a little off, is they get identified with the identity of being right, right? As opposed to realizing, oh, it's really messy, and we're all entangled in the mess, and what can we do? But nobody wants to feel what that feels like, so we take two basic strategies, you know, from my white person perspective, pretending that it's not my responsibility, or pretending it is my responsibility to fix all of you, right? And uh, But what we really want to do is highlight the sensitivity. Oh yeah, it's really messy, it really hurts, it's really broken, and I care, right? Because that will lead to not a perfect plan, but just doing, just like moment by moment, doing what we can, and not avoiding, not closing, turning away, but showing up a little bit better, a little bit with more clarity, a little bit more fearlessness, just, hey, it's unacceptable for me to remain in denial, so let me let me try something here in this situation, in any of these areas. And what we find then is that we start to feel more settled. Because we're more integrated, more connected, we feel more settled. And you see how it's so opposite of this idea of isolating into our, you know, the gated community or, you know, wherever we might want to go, hanging around with only people who think like us or whatever it might be. And I totally get that. In the short term, we're going to do that, and it's going to be okay to do that, just like cuddling with our lover, you know. It's like we've got our little gated community in our bedroom where we can sit down together and watch our favorite funny show and feel the safety of being in that little safe community. But it can't be the forever only strategy, right? It won't work. And then that freedom from remorse, because we're more connected, we have a more real relationship, then we feel like at least I don't have to maintain denial. And that starts to feel tranquil. And we start to feel more life energy, what we call joy and rapture. Joy isn't something you get when you're going down the roller coaster or win the lottery. Joy is the ordinary experience of feeling how alive everything is. But what cuts us off from that joy of being alive? Fear that if if I'm really in that place of being alive, I'm going to be exposed to all the things I think I need to be in denial of. 
right? So you see by having a more honest, open, sensitive, fearless relationship to everything, then we naturally start to feel more joy in life. And it's the joy, the Buddha says, that is the cause for tranquility. Real calm that, in a way, in the Buddhist psychology, tranquility and the pleasure, the sukha, is the Pali word of tranquility, is the highest kind of pleasure in that dualistic sense, you know, pain versus pleasure. The most potent pleasure is that wonderful ease of the heart. Like, ah, we get a little, this is pretty gross, but still more identifiable. You know, when we get that perfect massage or do the sauna and then you jump into the lake and then you go into the sauna, you jump in the lake and then you sit down and your whole body is just like tingly. That's just the beginning. That's more of a bodily tranquility. And what we're talking about now is a mental tranquility, like the mental version, or you could even say spiritual version of when your body just doesn't want to move. You know, you had such a great workout and now you're done, or whatever it was, and you just feel really good. But when the heart, mind feels that, it's even more pronounced. And that's what I meant when I said, then we can really start noticing contrast. Because all of a sudden, everything that makes the mind, the heart tight, squeezes the heart and mind, that stands out. Any kind of self-identity, like constructing a sense of me apart from others, right? It just stands out. Because the very definition in Buddhist psychology of tranquility, it's, it's that state or that capacity when developed that suppresses desire. So desire temporarily isn't active or isn't doing what it normally does, triggering identification. So maybe desire will arise, but the mind won't personalize. It won't feel like I have to do something because Oh, that chair over there might be more comfortable. Yeah, but I'm totally chill. <laughs> you know, I don't have to get more comfortable because I'm really, the body and mind is really tranquil. I could call my friend, but I don't need to call my friend. And so the mind doesn't take up desire, even though we can imagine what we like and what we don't like. We're not pushed around, the heart isn't pushed around by it. So when any of that does get triggered, that identification with desire, with identity, not the identity, but the identification with identity, then that contraction that comes with the attachment, the identification, it really stands out. And we really start to learn be- between when the mind does get, you know, takes the bait and when the mind doesn't take the bait. And we start to understand, oh, this is the freedom the Buddha was pointing to. Having a mind, being sensitive, but not taking the bait. And the bait here again is taking things personally. Now, initially we learned that through the outward passivity of being really tranquil. But then we want to learn it in action. 
you know, where we're doing stuff, we're running around, we're fixing things, we're making choices, but the mind isn't contracting around the identity, around preference, around my likes and dislikes. It doesn't mean I is, I'm not doing something about what I like, trying to get what I like, but the mind isn't congealing around I need to have what I like. If it comes, great. It will be that pleasure of gratification that will last for a while and then will be pretty much gone after however long. Sometimes just a few seconds. Sometimes the, the, the real peak of gratification is actually before we get it. You know, it's like, oh, I'm home and I can eat. And even before we get to the refrigerator, it sort of peaks. By the time we've got it heated up and we're sitting down, it's like, I mean, it's still nice, but it's already not as pleasant as the thought, the expectation, very soon I'm going to be eating what I've wanted. I mean, just observe how desire, the identification with desire works in your own mind. Because it's very interesting to just get really honest about that. Because then we can see how tranquility isn't just something that happens when we really let in the joy of being alive, but it really begins to be something that we can live with all life long. It doesn't have to go away. I just want to mention a few things that we could do, almost like homework, um, to help keep... uh, Yeah, just to get wiser about tranquility. So this is just from the tradition. Having some time alone. Having some time in nature. Simplifying your duties and responsibilities strategically when you can. Putting it down. Like if you have kids, you know, make a deal with the other parent. If there is another parent or some other caregiver, you know, where you can drop duties and responsibilities for a period of time. And it's hard with our cell phones, you know, to not be on call, but to shut it off, put the to-do list aside for periods of time. Can really, because like I said, playing with the outer environment can give us the initial sense of tranquility. And then that gives us a sense of, well, maybe this, sense of calm, this absence of feeling obliged to identify with every desire that we have. Like we might see an attractive person and we know that given how my mind's conditioned, that's an attractive person. But that doesn't mean the mind has to congeal around that attraction. It can just be that sense, oh yeah, the mind finds that person attractive. But I don't have to dwell, and I don't have to imagine, I don't have to feed that fire. But I could. And that's really the the skill that we learn. Hanging around with contented people, as opposed to, you know, people who are discontent. And just valuing, like, even on the level of the idea of, Just remembering that, 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 just intellectually remembering there's this possibility of being at ease with conditions. 
like the conditions of my life, like right now. We could either unconsciously mostly practice being discontent with the conditions of my body, the temperature of the room, the fact that I'm anxious about what I'm going to do later in the afternoon. When is this going to end? You know, So we could be practicing discontent, but we could also be practicing being content with the conditions as they are right now, being at ease, being relaxed with the conditions, knowing that they are this way. Do we have the capacity to be, in a pleasant way, tranquil when it's like this? You see, it's that absence of curiosity. That's a really good homework assignment. And then one more is just to be interested in neutral experience. Because, you know, most of our day, we're doing neutral stuff. We're turning on the light. We're brushing our teeth. Uh, we're, uh, you know, chopping vegetables. We're driving the kids somewhere. We're... And... To notice that capacity we have to be fully there, that fullness, I'm all in to this ordinary, neutral experience. Because there's no tranquility unless we're all in. Because if we're not all in, then we're on our way to something, right? Or we're still dwelling something from the past, which is a disturbing state of mind. But real calm can only be here and now in that from that integrated place that we're all here. And a good place to practice that, like as a homework, is because there's so much neutral things that we end up spending time doing. Well, let me really invest in that. Yeah, so, and you might have to you know, write down when you get home or make a note when you turn your phone back on. Oh yeah, I'm going to be interested in calm and tranquility. And both in terms of creatively, you know, in the context of all my duties and responsibilities, creatively finding conditions that will evoke calm and tranquility. But also, equally important, maybe more important, looking for calm and, and tranquility all the time. Well, what does it feel like? What's the availability of calm and tranquility now? And you know, in a moment, we'll be breaking up, we'll be heading home, and just that getting to the lobby and the entranceway, you know, maybe I can be at ease. But you won't unless we're keeping it in mind, like it's an actual value, just like keeping kindness in mind. Right? And that's how we, we can't do calm. We can't make ourselves calm, we, but we can be interested in it. We can't even make ourselves present, you know, mindfully aware, but we can remember it. We can remember that we value it. And that's really what we have to do. We have to remember that we value being at ease, no matter the conditions. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. 
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.